3: Please, Eddie, oh, please, it's me, you bruiser, I, I promise I didn't, I promise I didn't kill him, Eddie, uh, patty cake, patty cake, patty cake, it's me, you bruiser, Hold the
4: McNeely! And it is I, your book-accurate Roger Rabbit. Wizard, Jake, Ew. I don't speak like that. And also, I can summon doppelgangers at will, and it is uh, a weird power they just decided so I So
3: many impressions you could have. There's literally every character that's in Space Jam 2 is in this movie. You've also have- uh, What?
4: It's me, Roger Rabbit, from the <laughs> book. Who censored Roger Rabbit? This is how I talk.
3: You could have done the baby. You could have done Jessica. I mean, it's interesting. You just went with a- Just absolutely normal human voice for the intro of this episode.
4: What? What are you talking about? It is me, Roger Rabbit, (laughs) from the book Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolfe. And today
3: we are covering the film, of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, one of my favorite movies, I think, of all time. Uh, Rewatching this movie, I realized, like, uh, first I think I thought I saw this in the theater. I'm not actually sure that's true. I'm pretty sure... Instead, what had happened was I saw a little other known movie called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which mm. featured an animation short from none other than Roger
4: Rabbit and Fam. Ah, yes, yes. That was the style. But I'm of not time. sure. It's actually
3: possible. I could have seen this in the theater. It was PG rated. I was six. So it's, you know, I'm not actually sure. But what I can tell you is this: much like another film during this time, actually, I'll give credit to two other films for for uh, for this achievement. With me personally, this is my gush. Uh, I would say a two-frame Roger Rabbit, Jurassic Park, and Tim Burton's Batman were the three movies that I could essentially just close my eyes mm. and play every out, play out every single scene. You know what I mean? Like I just knew the exact order of those films. I'd seen them that many times. Uh you only get that from rewatches, right? Like, where I'm like, and then he goes here, and then he does this. But also, that is also to say, uh, this film is so, like, structurally fantastic. Mm-hmm. The pacing of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is so good. And just the constant visual treats in this movie, a la the animation, uh, is unbelievable and literally never ceases to impress and in fact now that I've done some more research it's one of those episodes where I am actually like triple impressed by the many feats of animation that have happened in this film
4: so I obviously saw this when I was a little kid and it was a fun adventurous romp part of the Disney Spielberg uh, late 80s early 90s family movie Oivre. Uh, we all have our stories of like Judge Doom being super nightmare fuel, yeah. you know, Christopher Lloyd with the bug-out eyes and the dip, holy shit, the dip with that little squeaky shoe, um, but I never really revisited it. It was just kind of, um, I always found the character of Roger Rabbit, like, kind of annoying, uh, no offense to Charles Fleischer and his uh, 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 performance in the movie, but I just never gave it another thought. It was just a classic movie, whatever. Um and in the intervening I'm going to say 30 years of my life I have since become kind of an animation nerd. Uh I studied cartooning when I was in high school. I f- dabbled in flash animation and like the the sheer work of creating an animated uh just any piece of drawn movement. I've grown an appreciation for and just never revisited Roger Rabbit until we had to do the research this week. And There is like a tragedy to this movie because every shot, every little thing happening on screen is so perfectly executed with so much coordination between physical props and physical uh, engineering, uh, the craft of animation itself, the craft of acting itself, all working in tandem to create these illusions... And pulling off like even subtle things that your brain isn't even aware of Uh is meticulously engineered and choreographed trick shots. And the script is so solid and the plot is so like well constructed that you don't even have time to register it to the point where like it's this incredible thing where I'm watching it being like, okay, I like, oh my God, that octopus in the background is using real marionetted props, being controlled by an expert puppeteer being animated being then like keyframed and lit and then optically shot to be perfectly uh lit within the scene and it's just a passing thing that like a six-year-old just be like haha funny octopus yeah. and not even realize and the, the 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 amount of work and the amount of craft going into every goddamn frame of this thing it's like I it's 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 almost I- intimidating it's almost overwhelming what is happening on screen now that you, with an adult's understanding of how much labor and how much foresight and how much just raw human soul energy it took to make things happen.
3: And especially, or I'll just say that I actually just thought because of this movie, when it came out, I was like, Oh hell yes, this is going to open the doors on a whole new genre of film that is going to be live action mixed with animation. And yes, there have been films since cool world space jam but uh, I don't think it ever quite took off in the way that it, it took off for Roger, who Roger Rabbit, just it, because it, I don't, it's so hard to recreate it. It's so fucking technically difficult to do. So this is like, this is a film that can be taught in so many different classes, right? Mm-hmm. You could teach it in acting class, acting across
4: uh, nothing. There is, there is, uh, I mean, throughout the movie, Bob Hoskins is delivering on a level of cra- technical craftsmanship that, is unheard of, but there's a specific shot in the uh jazz club where he is uh getting uh rubbed up by Jessica Rabbit, who we'll have to talk about big va va voom, wonka wonka, honky honky. Uh and he's his eyes are focused directly in front of his face, and she gets up and walks away, and you can see his pupils kind of <laughs> like go back to focusing on her as she walks away, but there's nothing there. Yeah, yeah. He is literally, like, forcing himself to see these characters without having seen them. It's so crazy.
3: 100%. Could be taught in any animation class. The animation technique is unbelievable. Any effects class, just because... the, the, The attention, especially practical effects, the attention to detail, there's literally no CGI in this film. Or especially... I think you could teach it, uh, the, there was uh, the, the, uh, camera work, camera op class, constant camera movement, camera movement on purpose, wanted to make you feel so in the real world. Uh, it, it just goes on and on and on. And then, oh, and the, the last big one I would say is script class, screenwriting class. It is just such a fucking tight script and every little moment matters, and every everything establishes something else, and it all wraps up. I, 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 it's such a satisfying ending. That movie is so satisfying whenever when all the tunes come in, and, uh, you know, with the hidden ink and everything, uh, or reappe- disappearing, reappearing ink, and that big, whole happy send-off. It just works so well, uh, and especially as a sort of noir film, uh, you know, and it's interesting to me too. As a kid, you know, you're getting all these things thrown at you in a movie like this that you have no reference for. And now I have all these reference points for this. I mean, they're they're using Chinatown, they're using the Long Goodbye, they're using all these di- these things for for um, uh, reference here. And uh, for me, it was just this like explosively unique, crazy thing that I'd never even heard of, with all these weird sexual undertones too, which was was also weird. And yeah. You know, much like a lot of you guys with Lola Bunny, yeah, we were another bunny generation. We got weird for Jessica Rabbit, okay? And it was a whole weird thing, all right? But also that it opened the doors uh, for someone like me to a whole history of cartooning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Walt Disney, Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes, all all of these references were all wrapped up into one thing, which still is the only place you can really see these characters interact like this. And I think it's an interesting time, too, in cinema, (laughs) currently, when everybody is just barfing over the disgusting cash grab that it appears that Space Jam 2 has become.
4: We did not plan. (laughs) We did not plan for Roger Rabbit to come out, or this episode to come out, in the wake of the Space Jam A New Legacy discourse. But it's weirdly appropriate. It's just an amazing serendipity.
3: It pales in comparison, right? Because Who Framed Roger Rabbit is such an earnest attempt to respect the history of cartoons and to bring these characters together because they have an interesting concept in mind that would bring them all together not just some ridiculous fucking commercial just juggernaut nightmare look at this and see and look we did this like to you know in fact uh, like look we brought back this character that it makes you, you sick to your stomach that we put Iron Giant in this movie aren't you happy <laughs> now that we put the fucking thing in the movie that makes you disgusted with with film rights no this was like such a, a beautiful love letter to golden age animation to the point where that it literally brought it back from the dead and and actually is credited for bringing disney back from the dead mm-hmm. as well because as we all know this is those weird dark ages for disney we, we it's hard to remember a time or think of a time that disney would be in the throes of like are we going to go bankrupt? but they did they were kind of flailing right now. This is before they came back big with Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and that whole era. They were didn't really know where they fit in. I feel like people were starting to look at them as like the old school. They put out Fox and the Hound. It was you know, did pretty well, but yeah, just kind of a strange time for them, and they needed something that was going to like thrust them into the new era. and they actually thought that, much like I did. As I said earlier, this was going to be the new way forward completely live action animation mix. Of course, I think they actually discovered it was more the Pixar approach eventually. Uh, but after they bang out some incredible animation features. It's,
4: it's also an amazing time for the movie industry uh, in general because we have the kind of uh, we talked about this before. We have the rise of Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment and Robert Zemeckis and uh, Kathleen Kennedy kind of. Ushering in the boomers as the dominant voice of uh, mainstream blockbusters, kind of uh, Roger Rabbit in of itself, kind of taking noir and uh, golden era cartoons is a very much a and in a lot of ways, sci fi, which we'll get into, uh, is very much kind of Spielberg's whole jam. E.T. is like It's a Wonderful Life meets, uh, you know, the day after uh, or the day the earth stood still. Um, the Goonies was, uh, you know, a swashbuckling pirate movie mixed with the apple dumpling gang. Like it's all the, these boomer references are now getting remixed and remashed together into weird new form. Indiana Jones, star Wars. These are all things that, uh, these creators grew up on and they're remixing them for the new generation in unconventional ways. And it's, uh, it works. It works really well. All
3: right, let's get into it. Who framed Roger Rabbit, the 1988 film uh, that is directed by Robert Roger Zemeckis, written by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman. And all right, Jake, please. I get I it. He didn't has a even funny chuckle. last name. I oh, didn't come even on, chuckle. Jake, How I dare you? This is all you, buddy. Tilting up. All right. You're we the one it. with Mr. The giggle Giggle come time. It's another word for jizz, Jake. We understand the, the double entendre there. Okay. Come on.
4: Let's be adults. It's not even a double entendre. <laughs> it's just the word for jizz.
3: <laughs> but isn't it ironic? And stars Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd, Charles Fleischer, Stubby K, and Joanna Cassidy. I can't believe, Jake, in the reference in the beginning, you didn't want to go, and it's me, your wizard, Jake, and it looks just just like me! That would have been fun. But instead, no, you were just the character Roger Rabbit from the book who censored Roger Rabbit. (laughs) Which we're about to talk to. Uh, this film is set in a version of Hollywood in which cartoon characters, or tunes, as they are referred, coexist with humans and follows a detective that attempts to prove famous toon Roger Rabbit is not actually who murdered a wealthy businessman. Uh, so the book, written by Gary K. Wolf. I had no idea this book exists, even though it clearly states in the credits that it was based on this book. I don't know if I was reading very much uh, back when I was obsessed with this movie.
4: I vaguely understood that that this was based on a book, but the the life and times of Gary K. Wolf is very weird. Um, who censored Roger Rabbit? Uh, the there's a lot of things different in this version of the story, but uh, yada 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 on Gary K. Wolf. He's a boomer. <laughs> uh, he wanted to be a science fiction author. He sold a couple of short stories. Wrote a couple of novels, such as Killer Bull and the Resurrectionists. Uh, I got a book of his early kind of short stories that he self-published called The Road to Toontown. And, um, you know, he grew up mostly in Illinois, far away from the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Uh, In fact, it seems more like once the story was in the hands of people who actually worked and lived in Hollywood, that the L.A. became more of a character in of itself, like... Uh, in Who Censored Roger Rabbit there is no freeway uh conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no freeway conspiracy. That is conspiracy. very much in the mind and hearts of people who actually live in Yeah, LA.
3: there's a lot that's not in the book that's in the film, but you de- and and I think the biggest thing here is that it's not holly famous Hollywood cartoons, it is comic strip. Which right? is weird. Yeah,
4: which is weird. In the uh, in his book in the foreword he talks about how he came to create the Roger Rabbit Toontown universe. And he says, uh, quote, I had just finished writing The Resurrectionist, my third science fiction novel. I was looking for a concept to use in my fourth, and I wanted to write something involving two of my great loves, comic books and cartoons. As research, parentheses, or t- so I told my wife, I spent my Saturdays watching cartoons on TV. I became fascinated with them, not with the cartoons themselves, but with the commercials. Cap'n Crunch, Tony the Tiger, The Trix Rabbit, Snap, Crackle, and Pop. All these cartoon characters were interacting with real kids, yet nobody thought that was odd. What an interesting idea, I said to myself. What would happen if I created a world where cartoon characters were real? And this is kind of one of the things that makes Roger Rabbit Roger Rabbit, is this is a sci-fi author kind of dipping into pop culture in its core. And it feels weird to say this, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a work of speculative fiction. It is hypoth is hypoth- it's hypothesizing <laughs> what if cartoons were real and kind of trying to suss out the actual details and mechanics of that concept in fascinating ways and
3: so yeah, the the one of the big first things is the who censored Roger Rabbit all title even just comes from uh, at the murder scene, there's an empty word bubble. Mm-hmm. and so he knows that someone has like censored him. So we're working with a little bit of different like logic set. When it comes to the book. It
4: is key to Roger Rabbit in, uh, key to Toon Mechanics is we're not dealing with animated like uh, Disney and Warner Brothers characters, we're dealing with comic strip characters. I think the joke he was going for is that comic strips are owned by syndicates, so there's like crime and stuff. Roger Rabbit is a uh, kind of B-tier star in a comic strip, Uh, in this world, comic strip characters All of their words are uh, ejected from their bodies in the form of word balloons that then linger and litter the streets. Um, The slapstick within uh, the comic strips are done using doppels, which are... Clones that are mind-generated by cartoon characters to take the knocks for them that usually disappear within an hour or so. Dopp-
3: Dopp- Dopp- Doppelganger, by the way. Yeah. I think that's what that's short for.
4: Jessica Rabbit is still a hottie boom body. She's who, in there. uh It is implied uh, came into being through Tijuana novels.
3: <laughs> uh, Baby, Herm- Baby Herman's yeah. in there as well, uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and those that's pretty much where the similarities end
4: there's also a, a lot of stuff revolves around a genie there is so much genie <laughs> shenanigans it just reeks of someone who like so got the, the story got away yeah, from them yeah, because yeah, there's just, now there's genie shenanigans a genie. there's all these like double crosses like rule breaking or or you know it's like well if a genie can grant a wish but the genie hates you but it was a doppel that made the witch it's a lot of it gets very confusing <laughs> uh I have a quote about how uh, Gary K. Wolf came to create Jessica Rabbit, which I find hilarious. Um, He talks about Roger Rabbit just being a combination of Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny, which is what everyone sees him as. Uh, But Jessica came harder. Quote, the boys had far outnumbered the girls in my hometown. When it came to dating, the girls were extremely choosy. They went out with college boys and the captains of the town sports teams good luck getting a date if you were pre- if you were president of the chess club <laughs> i had no sisters so my early age experience with the feminine gender was minimal when i created jessica i made her into my ideal of the perfect woman the one i wished i could have dated in high school every boy's dream so just sex the woman okay yes <laughs> literal in like I, I don't want to. I don't want to bog down our <laughs> our uh, show with culture shit.
3: Fucking get your culture shit out of here, Jake. I want to talk about the sexy ladies. Jessica
4: Rabbit was born from incel shit. <laughs> Literally, he invented a fucking waifu, and it fucking started a mind virus that infiltrated entire generations of horny, lonely, weird boys who also probably had minimal uh, interaction with the feminine gender <laughs> and started getting two D complexes and it just i just every, i'm saying right now Gary K Wolf sci-fi novelist born in Illinois fucking yada 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 you're having a weird argument about shira on twitter <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i can see
3: the line of the logic okay. there for sure jake absolutely that is okay. very funny but yeah the whole thing is very very different to the point where it kind of reminds me of when I read the book for the uh the book Forrest Gump that that the movie was based on and you're reading it and you're like man it's kind of hard to tell how you thought this would make a good movie this this book is ridiculous you know what i mean like because the book he like goes to space and like all this crazy shit and you're like what is happening uh and it feels a little similar that way of like i i kind of want to read this book now just to see like I I see what they saw when they read it, because the description of what happens in it is so bizarre, especially with all the genie stuff. The genie stuff really just sounds like a little, when you ask a little kid to make up a story. And then the genie, um, he can't come out of the bottle if it's the wrong person, but if it's the right person, then he does come out of the bottle.
4: (laughs) But the character, uh, Roger Rabbit, who is killed in this first book, uh, Jessica Rabbit the sexpot wife with a secret baby Herman uh and of course Eddie Valiant uh are all present what's interesting though is once the movie comes out i'm just going to go through Gary Wolf's whole arc cuz we once we get to the movie it's kind of weird going back Yeah yeah day.
3: yeah let's just let's just get get it in there He
4: releases a sequel in 1991 the original movie came out in 1988 called Who Plugged Roger Rabbit uh and the title alone lends some, lets you know that something's different about this because in the original book, Roger Rabbit didn't have a speech impediment. That was something that came later when the, uh, hopefully when we talk about the Disney version of the movie, uh, but the cover of the book features movie accurate, Roger Rabbit movie accurate, uh, Jessica Rabbit and a vaguely movie accurate Valiant. And it basically is a sequel to the movie huh. and it is so different from the book and the characterizations and events are so different. That Jessica Rabbit basically is just like uh, I had a weird dream where there was a genie and my husband died. Uh, don't worry about it. This is the reality uh-huh. now, though. Uh-huh. The book also introduces Jolene Rabbit, who is an identical copy of Jessica Rabbit, but is uh, a foot tall, and she falls in love with Eddie Valiant. Don't think about it. In the two thousands, however, Wolf, I uh, kind, I don't know, I, I can't, I can't look into this guy's heart, but something happens. Maybe he. Ran out of money, (laughs) but he uh, sues Disney claiming that he was due back royalties based on the idea that his contract said that he was getting gross receipts and merchandising sales as part of his deal. Uh, The case went to court in 2002. Uh, At first, they sided with Disney. He appeals. Then they side with him. And there is a settlement that uh, at one point, Disney's like, uh yeah, uh thanks for suing us. We had to go check our books. I think you actually owe us a million dollars. man. Uh, Wolf received uh won the de- won a decision in two thousand five and received anywhere from hundred eighty to four hundred thousand dollars in damages. Uh, this is significant because in twenty thirteen he releases a third Roger Rabbit book called Who Whacked Roger Rabbit, which. Uh, It goes back on all the changes he made in Who Plugged Roger Rabbit. And now everyone's back to the first book characterization. And it involves uh, Valiant uh, being a bodyguard for um, Gary Cooper, who is doing a method acting uh, retreat in Toontown with a lot more original characters. Uh, One of the funny things about Who Whacked Roger Rabbit is... In the original version of the first book who censored Roger Rabbit, it's Gary K. Wolfe on the cover as Eddie Valiant, and he reprises the role on the book cover in 2013. So it's just a weird old man who definitely doesn't look like a grizzled detective on the cover. (laughs) Also missing from the cover is Roger Rabbit and Jessica Rabbit and anyone else that... Maybe in the ensuing damages, Disney was like, you don't get to use these characters to promote yourself as hard
3: anymore. Yeah, I mean, book sequels aside, I'm actually really glad they never made a sequel to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. We'll talk about the potential sequel stuff. There always is that right at the end uh, for these episodes. But uh, I am actually happy because it really is this perfect little encapsulated thing that's such a Beautiful relic of like film history that I just don't even want it tampered with with a sequel or anything like that, or a musical. Uh, All right, let's talk about this adaptation process. One of my favorite things is to look and think about look at and think about adaptation. So here we go. Walt Disney Productions bought up the film rights of the book pretty quickly after it comes out. Uh, Ron W. Miller, the president at the time, felt it would make a hit. Then they brought in Jeffrey Price and Peter. All right, here we go, Jake. Peter S. Seaman, can you just
4: relax? Just a, a, little just bit? a guy who loves the ocean. I just uh, comes from a long line of sailors. Say so
3: he's talking normally, but his shoulders are doing that thing where you like when you hold in laughter, they just like bounce up and down. I see what's going on. You're just dis- you disgust. You
4: you I refuse these lies. I have not tittered even once. Like
3: I get it. Why don't you go? Take a little look at a picture of Jessica Rabbit in the bathroom for a little That's bit. That's the opposite give you of the
4: problem.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, they bring in Jeffrey Rice and Peter S. Seaman to write a script, and these guys are a team that would later write stuff like Doc Hollywood. Uh oh, I think you've heard of this one, Jake. Wow, wow, was yeah. Their career is actually wild, very wild weird. Wild
4: like it's kind of yeah, yeah. They have a weird career. <laughs> it's it's Who Framed Roger Rabbit? They wrote episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Sure. Wild Wild West. Shrek
3: the Third. Oh, I I have Shrek the Third as my other example. What did you have? They have
4: Shrek the Third, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, They apparently wrote the much maligned Wacky Races movie that's been in development hell for over a decade. So
3: wait, they did the live action Grinch movie because that movie is like horrific to me.
4: Uh, It was nominated for Golden Raspberry for worst screenplay. Uh, Wild Wild West actually won the Golden (laughs) Raspberry for worst screenplay. That's so
3: crazy because I, first of all, Talk Hollywood, I really quite enjoy. Mm-hmm. Second of all, uh, Hoover and Roger Rabbit, again, going back to it, I, I kind of view it as like a perfect script.
4: It's so solid. It's so it makes airtight. no sense Everything that they fell comes like back this. around
3: perfectly. Like, they set up everything so well in the beginning. Oh, so mm-hmm. uh,
4: the thing with uh, Ron W. Miller is he was the guy who, uh, again, was overseeing the dark days, the kind of uh, the dark ages, and he realized that maybe Disney needs to mix something up, so... He was one of the people who uh, pushed hard for Disney to start making more adult movies under his uh, the new uh, header of Touchstone Pictures. And so who censored Roger Rabbit, this dark take on a cartoon uh, world, was actually kind of an ideal starting point for this new venture to kind of say, yes, it's made by Disney, but no, it's not for babies. And so he was very excited about this project, and he was the one who kind of got the ball rolling.
3: And Seaman and Price uh, wrote a movie called Trenchcoat that was also put out via Disney. I believe, was it Touchstone or was it one of the movies that led to the creation of Touchstone? Either way, it was like right around the time that Disney was starting to look towards making more adult-oriented fare, look and, and saying, hey, we want to put movies like these out, but we also need to have this like subsidiary because if we put the Disney name on it, it just, it, it's it's not going to work. It's that That's our stuff for kids. So, uh, but that still puts them in the perfect place to be chosen for this project, Semen and Price, that is, because they had kind of created, already kind of did, did a test case for, like, more adult-oriented Disney. Noir. releases.
4: Things.
0: Yeah, stuff.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun—yeah, you get it every
1: time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba da ba ba ba.
2: Sofas, recliners, love seats—everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable, and. Wait a minute! Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at four ninety nine ninety nine and sofas at five ninety nine ninety nine.
4: Ashley, for the love of home. So we're now. At, so we're at the Disney version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
3: Oddly enough, at this point, Robert Zemeckis offers to direct it, uh, but his last two films at this point were total bombs. So Disney shuts him down. Back to that in just a little bit. That is very interesting because of what uh, he goes on to make uh, and then come back to them. Over the next two years, Disney creates test footage under the direction of a guy named Daryl Van uh, Sitters, who was an animator on The Fox and the Hound, and this guy creates essentially this proof of concept of what it would look like to have a more modern take on the animation mixed with live action thing. Because, by the way, it should be brought up. Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. The, Disney's no stranger to mixing live action with animation.
4: Chitty Chitty Gangbang. Bang, all, all these great right, films. All right,
3: please, Mr. Seaman, please. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's true. that they They had done all that at that point, but... If you go back and look at those movies, even the
4: eye lines are off. No, nobody's ever actually looking at yeah. what's happening. It's just Julie Andrews just being like, "I." someone's telling me there's a penguin in this general vicinity. Yes. I'm just going to nod politely. Exactly.
3: It feels, it's very much mashed together. And I think the idea here was, let's take it a step forward. Let's really create something that gives the illusion that they truly are uh, interacting with each other. And so this test footage actually, oddly enough, stars... Paul Rubens as Roger Rabbit, who was at the time a total unknown working at the Groundlings, but he did the voice for these early tests. And I don't know who they got for the um, actor to play uh, the detective, but not not uh, Bob Hoskins. Uh, we'll just say that. So
4: the Disney Channel aired a sneak preview, kind of a, like, one of their let's go, see how the magic happens uh, kind of specials for the Disney Channel, early cable, and you get to see... Uh, all Daryl Van Sitters and uh, all the on his animation team, kind of working with this proto Roger Rabbit cast and this these proto designs. Um, I'm going to insert a little clip of Paul Rubens as Roger Rabbit, which uh, you can hear on this special. Here it is. Oh, yes, sir. But wouldn't it be more helpful if, if I started
3: to get to, to came along with you? Because what, what, if maybe you got you got to get into some, some some more locks or something? And, and, uh,
4: uh, okay uh and already Paul Rubens added the Papapa please which is very yeah. interesting because I thought this that was like kind of uh a Charles Fleischer invention so it's interesting to see how this early version influenced it Jessica Rabbit looks completely different she's like wearing pants it's very weird seeing Jessica rabbit in pants uh the plot is completely different there's different characters uh there's Uh, Roger Rabbit himself kind of looks like a screwy squirrel kind of character. It's all like it's it feels like a bizarro version of the movie, but it's just um, what happens is the movie kind of gets shunted aside because uh, what Miller gets ousted at Disney and replaced by now famous uh, big shot Disney guy, Michael Eisner as well as his little gremlin friend, Jeffrey Katzenberg.
3: Yes, and, he, and Eisner wants to revamp this project that seemed to be stuck in some kind of production limbo. He decides to, at this point, reach out to Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment to get it off the ground, and they're interested. They propose a budget of $50 million. This uh, finally ends up getting settled with Disney down to $30 million and the thing gets greenlit, and so this is the most movement forward they've seen in a while, because like I said, they bought the rights in 81. The movie doesn't come out until 88. They're creating this test footage in 83. I mean, this is such a long, long development process before this movie actually happens to the point where I'm just kind of shocked that it even did, based on the, the general concept and what had to go down. Spielberg's contract gives him a ton of creative control, as well as a big percentage on the box office, with Disney keeping all the merchandising rights. I think Spielberg actually it worked out better for him in the end. Even though I did have a Roger Rabbit stuffed animal, and I loved him so much. Uh, he was fantastic. Now, this of course is a time when Disney is in a bit of dire straits. They're just in a. They're just in between whatever they're trying to figure out. Uh, the new wave next. They're they're, they're becoming old hat, and yeah, there's just a lot hinging all of a sudden on the success of this film. Um, so the writers end up uh, making a point. The what was it, Seaman and the other guy, uh, Price, Mm -hmm. making a point to watch a ton of Golden Age American animation, especially that of Tex Avery and Bob Clampett, among other materials from the Disney and Warner Brothers vaults. The whole plot point about the electrically powered trolleys being replaced with freeway comes in at this point into the script. Uh, And this whole -suburb, suburb expansion. It's just so funny, living in L.A. now, Um, And reading about this makes me kind of upset. Price said, in Los Angeles during the 1940s, car and tire companies teamed up against the Pacific Electric Railway system and bought them out of business. Where the freeway runs in Los Angeles is where the red car used to be. And so they even mention the red car in the film. Oh, yeah. And it's just completely uh, true to history. It's so funny. Just
4: talking about like watching this movie, there's a lot of moments that kind of stick out. The dip, the goddamn dip, uh, adding this to our canon I love of it. 80s cocaine nightmares dip. that they didn't realize were traumatizing, traumatizing kids. Fun side fact, Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson, plays the squeaky little uh, shoe that gets fucking murdered as it whines desperately to live. Um, she gets the role of uh, Bart Simpson much uh, a year later. Just a weird... Weird happenstance. Anyway, the weirdness of like you're following this cartoon adventure. There's all this shenanigans going on. The finale is so crazy, and then it all hinges on the oh, what this movie was actually about was public transportation infrastructure, idiot. <laughs> but
3: you know what? It is fucking annoying to see that that we actually had a really good public transportation here in Los Angeles, and then just corporations bought it out, created all these nightmare freeways, and now all everyone complains about is the traffic here, and how fucking annoying it is to get around, how we're all estranged from each other unless we live in our exact
4: same neighborhoods, you know what I mean? Traffic jams, Holden, did you not hear Judge Doom? Traffic jams will be a thing of the past, eight (laughs) lanes of perfectly paved highway.
3: (laughs) So, yeah, it is It is kind of fascinating to see that it was based on real stuff and so sad to see that we did destroy Toontown.
4: We did. It's, it's- Supposedly, uh, the Cloverleaf Industries uh, and the whole plot was also going to be used in a sequel to Chinatown, which had recently come out and was in the popular memory at the time. And it just, like, that sequel never came through and they kind of recycled those ideas as a big noir L.A. story in this movie. It's just a just a weird happenstance.
3: I love the way this was worded wherever I read it, but uh, they ha- had a hard time finding their villain until they created a character named Judge Doom. <laughs> and then they said, hey... Maybe
4: Judge Doom would be a good bad guy. <laughs> so yeah, uh, there it. are several drafts of the script. Uh, <laughs> one draft had Jessica Rabbit as the villain. Uh-huh. I think that was the Disney version. Another had Baby Herman as the villain at the end.
3: Both are too obvious. Yeah, both way too uh, obvious. Judge
4: Doom is introduced, and
3: actually, no, he's this the most is a fun obvious.
4: fact. Mm-hmm. This always got to me. One of the things about Judge Doom that always struck me as odd. This is like a flashback to being a kid sitting confused in the theater. Was everybody you see on screen is a actual cartoon? Like things that you, I vaguely remember from old Disney cartoons, old merry Melodies, old Popeye cartoons, like all the little goobers on screen. Are, I don't think there's there's barely any original characters except maybe Benny the Cab, the talking bullets, like the weird, horny, uh, fake Jessica Rabbit. Uh-huh. But like for the most part, they're not they're mostly preconceived cartoons and that the villain of the story is this. Guy, we've never heard of whose real name we don't know, whose true face we don't even know. But in a previous version of the script, it was going to be revealed that Judge Doom was a character that we had known before. Mm. Judge Doom was going to be the hunter who shot Bambi's mom. Yes. Yeah, he totally the was. The most successful murderer in all of cartoon <laughs> history.
3: Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, some other things that were in the script that did not uh, end up in the film. Judge Doom was supposed to have an uh, animated crow on his shoulder the whole time as like, sort of a sidekick.
4: No, it was a vulture, was a vulture named Voltaire. Oh, okay. And uh, oh, yeah, in you're one right, vulture, release of the action figures he appears. Oh. You can, if you go on eBay and go hunting, you can see the design for Voltaire.
3: And my favorite is that because he was the judge, he needed a jury, so he had this suitcase that he would open up, and 12 tiny kangaroos would pop out, and they would hold up signs as the jury saying like guilty, essentially, or not guilty, or whatever. Uh, and, uh, More yeah.
4: fact dump! Fact dump number seven okay. in our fact dump, uh, The five weasels were originally supposed to be seven yes. weasels. Yeah, they're based on the uh, seven dwarfs. So, in Instead of sleepy and sneezy, it was sleazy and uh, nutcase and murder, murder stuff. Yeah, it was what
3: stupid, smartass, greasy, wheezy, and psycho are the uh, are the five that made it in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I uh, love that. I love those characters. They're fantastic. Their whole thing with laughing to death is like such a funny fucking turn. All the like cartoon logic shit that they instill in this film is so smart and so creative. And as a kid, too. Uh, you know it's really well done when I wanted to play with all of those toys. All those like Acme, the shoes, the the black
4: hole. The portable hole. Oh, oh my God. I wanted
3: that hole. to be real. Oh I God, wanted well. that to be real. I'll tell you what. I, there is a bit of a portable hole, if you Hold know it,
4: what I no. mean. What are we talking about? Come on, please. Semen and Price screenwriters.
3: <laughs> uh, before they landed on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, by the way, here's factoid number eight. They tossed around titles like Murder in Toontown, Toons. Dead Toons Don't Pay Bills, The Toontown Trial, Trouble in Toontown, and Eddie Goes to Toontown. Which, by the way, would have kind of ruined the whole thing because I like how they... I I didn't honestly know whether or not they would go to Toontown. The way they dangle that in front of you throughout the film is so smart. And then the payoff when they do go to Toontown is truly spectacular. I Mm -hmm. mean, that whole animation sequence when he goes in is... Absolutely phenomenal and uh, so entertaining, and you just—it's so rare you get such strong payoffs as the ones that you get in this movie with all the things that they set up oh, yeah. and everything. So uh, this is the part where I wish like I could be in the room for these negotiations. I'm sure they were probably actually really boring, but what is it about Steven Spielberg and getting like the craziest rights to shit? It's so insane to me. I guess, is it his
4: lawyers? I think it's just Steven Spielberg can walk into a room and have enough gravitas mixed with Oshucks shucks <laughs> baseball cap and sneakers energy <laughs> that he, and he did it again for Ready Player One. Yeah. Like the man just, people just are like, Well, if you're involved, it'll make money. So sure. So
3: yeah, he got Warner Brothers, uh, aka Looney Tunes, rights. The Fleischer Studios rights. That's Betty Boop and others. King Features Syndicate, which is like Beetle Bailey and Blondie. Felix the Cat Productions. Turner Entertainment, which is Tom and Jerry and whatnot. Universal Pictures slash Walter Lance Productions. That's Woody Woodpecker. All give them the rights to their famous characters in order to bring them together for this film. I mean, not all of their characters. Obviously, we don't see all of that in the film, but they got a lot of it. They also did have a lot of rules, of course. It kind of reminds me of when Marvel vs. Capcom Ultimate came out, and and Marvel was like, in the trailer, no Marvel character can be seen losing the fight, which is the most ridiculous shit ever, but they definitely had uh, dumb rules like that. For this movie, one of the fun ones is that both Donald Duck and Daffy Duck had to be equally as talented at the piano duel. Uh, one could not best the other technically at playing piano, uh, which is a, such a silly one. Or
4: that uh, if Mickey Mouse had to be on screen, Bugs Bunny had to be there. They had to have equal time yes. on screen
3: together. Which that, that whole moment, too, is so, so is great. So,
4: it feels so weird yeah, being like, so wow, weird. this is magical. But uh, fun fact, uh, this was one of Mel Blanc's last performances as Daffy Duck and uh, and Bugs Bunny as well as all the other Looney Tunes voices. He died a year after the movie came
3: out. Absolutely. One of his final works, and he just does such a great job, and I'm so glad, too, because it really makes the movie. Uh, Here's another fun fucking fact for you, Jake. Terry Gilliam was offered the spot to direct at first, but uh, due to, quote, pure laziness on my part, and he turned it down, and uh, later he did say, I completely regret that decision, though I, at the same time, feel like this movie would be so weird and different with Terry Gilliam at the helm. I'm I'm glad it ended up in the hands of director of Back to the Future. We just covered him. I'm not going to get too into his backstory. Just go listen to the Back to the Future episode for the backstory of Robert Zemeckis. But yeah, remember when I said that he uh, his last two films were flops and Disney was like, get out of here, kid, scram. We got a movie to make. And then he goes off and makes Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, kid, we made a big mistake. We're a bunch of idiots, all right? Come on now. And then uh, Peter Seaman was just like, hey, come into this closet, come into
4: this closet.
3: Z- Zibachis, and he was just like, I don't want to talk to you, kid. I don't know why everybody has a uh, mid-Atlantic, what is it called, transatlantic accent, but they do in this scenario. Because it's
4: show business, ha-cha-cha-cha.
3: <laughs> so he's super thrilled. Obviously, he's been wanting to make this movie for a few years now, so super thrilled to get hired. He and cinematographer Dean Cundey, you're going to hear some quotes from Dean Cundey, so remember that name, Uh fantastic cinematographer. They go in and have a very troubling meeting with Disney about the film. By the way, Cundey, B movie guy led to him doing the first Halloween film. This sparked a working relationship with John Carpenter and started working, uh, with Zemeckis on both romancing the stone and back to the future. So this guy is fantastic. I mean, Halloween, the cinematography and that, the stuff they do with lighting and things like that in that film, it makes a lot of sense. We're about to talk a bit about lighting very soon. So it would make sense that this guy would be the cinematographer because he's kind of a master of, of using lighting to reveal things, uh, in the case of Halloween or in the case of this to sell animation. Uh, So at this troubling meeting with Disney, they are told the motherfucking rules like no close ups, no fancy lighting like I just was talking about, nothing that would give the animators a headache. Dean Cundey said when Bob and I left the meeting where they had said six or eight things that we should or couldn't do, uh, Bob and I said, well, those are the rules we're going to break. How are we going to do it? Dean also said, it was a refreshing challenge for me, knowing I would be supported with weird things I would think up. Bob was not afraid or intimidated by the technology. He just wanted to take people somewhere they hadn't gone before. So with that in mind, we just set out on the journey. Uh, And the journey, though, was not complete without a certain master animator that they brought in, and that is Richard Williams. This is the guy that is the true, I feel, linchpin of what makes this film work. Uh, on so many levels. Uh, uh, he came in to quote, shoot it like a modern movie, according to Richard Williams. Richard, uh, as a kid, he saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, had a huge impact on him, and gave him a lasting love for Disney properties. He's also known for animating the openings for the Pink Panther films, among other things. Uh, first, he didn't, uh, uh, he, he essentially is this really interesting guy. He actually went out to Europe for a while. He ended up studying um, different, uh, you know, Different types of art. He was doing a lot of like indie, innovative, odd cartooning work and made a short movie that had a lot of critical acclaim. But the thing was, was that, uh, and I'm getting a lot of this, by the way, from a great book called The Animator Survival Kit that I picked up. It's just fascinating in general about the art of animation. And I will talk a little bit about what I gleaned from reading some of its pages. But in general, you know, he was like, I'm this like, he, he was such a kid. He was just like me in my 20s in the sense of like, I'm doing my own thing and like I don't I'm not Disney, I'm my own thing. But then he saw Bambi and he was like, "Oh shit." And then especially watching Jungle Book, he ended up writing a letter to like the animators at Disney, essentially just this like pages long like like a uh, BJ of sorts, um not a BJ, pages long like uh love gush fest of sorts where he just not talked about Not
4: a BJ, a gush fest. A gush Two fest. different things. Please.
3: He he just told them like all the like how important what they did was how he just wanted needed to learn how how to make characters move like that and uh, you know, just going on and on and on until he finally got in with a lot of those guys and uh, got mentored by a ton of them and realized, like, in order to innovate, like, he can still innovate, but he needs to learn all the old techniques from the masters in order to just just learn all their magic tricks on how to sell movement. Because a lot of what he teaches in the book isn't—it's—it it makes you realize, like, good animation isn't exactly one to one to actual human movement. Mm-hmm it's actually selling the illusion which you you literally need to, as he refers to it, break bones in order to do so, right? Like if you were to like, Throw a ball in the air or something like that. If you're going to sell it, especially in that classic animation style, that arm has to bend in ways that like human arms shouldn't bend. But it sells the illusion to the human eye in a certain way that's better than just making it one-to-one movement, if that makes sense. If
4: you don't know anything about Richard Williams and you watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you kind of would just assume, oh, this, they got some Disney guy to do this for them. This is a Disney movie after all. But Richard Williams really is kind of his own island uh, with his production studio based out of England, where uh, he got work for movies. He did uh, the opening sequence to What's New Pussycat? You mentioned the Black Panther film. Pink Panther. But all this stuff has a very modern aesthetic. There's like kind of a flat, abstract uh, graphic style to it that you really, truly do not associate with the kind of fluid, uh, kind of luxurious animation that you would associate with Disney but he had his studio did an incredible mix of both commercials and uh short art films that all kind of took on different styles he was his studio was amazingly adaptable you can find compilations of richard williams commercial work and this it almost it shifts from like moving watercolors to like action packed like comic book styles like it's kind of incredible how how he's a chameleon that like whatever the job calls for, he fulfills in ways that are uh, above and beyond. I, I, if you've ever watched an old like serial commercial and you're like, Jesus Christ, why is the Trix rabbit like so well animated? <laughs> it's because of studios like Richard Williams where you're responsible for only a minute of animation and it has to capture your eye for the entirety of it. You, there's no workarounds. And so his exacting eye for detail his incredible love and respect for the craft uh made him an unlikely candidate but actually the perfect guy to do this character of Roger Rabbit who is a amalgam of looney tunes humor disney uh animation and uh Tex Avery kind of just uh quick gags it's it's incredible to watch and it's so luxuriously animated that it's it's, it's it's Roger Rabbit's animation is its own thing. It, it's, it yeah. goes beyond the limits. Instead of having an insider just do a workaday thing, this is a longtime admirer and practitioner of animation doing, to the height of his ability, everything he possibly can that makes animation perfect. Watching Roger Rabbit in motion, uh, the ears alone, if you've not seen Roger Rabbit for a very long time, watch the character's ears. They are constantly... Reacting to his emotional state, anticipating the character's movements, mm-hmm. twirling and moving in all sorts of directions to the point where uh, I believe Richard Williams said, "My goal was to have his ears mimic the fluidity and grace of a ballet sh- of a ballet dancer's shoes," I,
3: I, and it honestly awesome. looks like it. Yeah, I think, and because uh, I. There was also another great section in, in what I was reading from the book, essentially about how he asked like one of his mentors, like in this in this scene, how would what would the um counter movement be? In reaction to what this other character did, and the mass, and the guy who was mentoring him, one of those Disney guys, he was just like, "That shut up! Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is not that. If you if you break it down like that, you're never going to get good. We're talking about acting here. Yeah. We need to. We are acting. Like all of this stuff that we're doing essentially is like, are like the illustrator version, the animator version of acting. Look at it like that. How the characters would feel out in the scene you know because or feel out a scene and, and and actually live in 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 that moment and what would they do in that sense as a as a character as a as a person you know and I think that was such a big part of it He's
4: also the ideal candidate for this job because one of his big kind of favorite party tricks was doing things in animation that you weren't supposed mm-hmm. to do because it was too difficult stuff like camera rotations and weird perspectives and uh, stuff like uh, the raggedy Ann and Andy movie. Uh, He loves a checkerboard floor because you have to get the perspective so correctly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to make it feel dimensional and real. That's
3: exactly what happens, that opening moments uh, where they're actually doing essentially like a cartoon short to open the film with that uh, kitchen scene. And that all those perspective changes where he swirls around inside that room and we follow him and these... It's so over the top, incredibly well done that you you almost don't even think about it because it's that old thing of like he almost makes it look easy, like oh yeah, this is just like normal animation. It's completely insane, physics wise and perspective wise. To
4: to to get a a to get back onto the back on track of the story of how the movie was made, Disney sits down Zemeckis and is like, if you're going to do this, here are the things you can't do. Zemeckis says. I want to do all of those things. And it's Richard Williams of all the people that he talks to that's like, oh, we can do it. It's going to be hard work. It's going to cost money. It's going to take time, but we can fucking do it. And actually, in a brilliant move, he also refuses to go to Los Angeles.
3: And makes this whole bid to say, if you want to do this, we have to move the whole production to London Mm -hmm. and do this in England. And purposely because he did not want to be close to Disney. He didn't want to be close to the studio uh, because he didn't love the bureaucracy that happened over there as much as he loved the artists and, and the great work that came out of there. And it actually may have saved the film. Because now, and I feel like we've talked about this before in other cases where sometimes moving yourself as far away from the studio as you can and just, like, mm-hmm. allows you that extra little bit of creative freedom just because they can't meddle as much. So that, I think, is exactly what happened here. And just the fact that he was able to do it. He also, again, he was he was a bit of a, like,
4: for what it like, a like, almost a bit of a curmudgeon. Animators are control freaks. They literally shape reality on a frame-by-frame basis to their exact whims, and they are terrible at... And any change you ask of them is really asking for like a month of work. So they are famously like not about getting notes.
3: Well, and he clearly knew his worth and they clearly knew his worth because he still wouldn't make it until Spielberg uh, promised to uh, finish or or make his magnum opus film, The Thief and the Cobbler, uh,
4: or at least fund it. What also helped is they made a test film. This is different from the Disney test footage. You can find this test footage online and it has uh, of all people Joe Pantoliano as Eddie Valiant walking through a dingy neon lit alley with Roger in his final design and they do all the things that Disney told them not to do yeah. he moves between different lighting sources the camera follows him he moves to the foreground and background at one point he even passes behind a uh, dingy piece of glass and his uh, figure gets kind of diffused in the in the win- in the glass It's an amazing piece of animation. And like once that's laid out, once they realize uh, what Williams is capable of, he immediately, like there's no doubt anymore. In fact, Upon seeing the test footage, one of the studio execs actually went up to Williams and Zemeckis and was like, so who'd you get to be in the rabbit suit? Because he could not conceive that that was drawn by hand.
3: Right, yeah. And you even in reading about the film, you even have a lot of people just saying, we knew this was going to be a fucking huge hit while we were making it. It was just one of those movies. Like the whole time we knew this thing was going to be a smash hit. So let's get to the cast. They looked at Harrison Ford, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy, Robin Williams, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, Sylvester Stallone. And then they finally land on Bob Hoskins. And I'm so glad that they didn't get any of those other people because I think they would have stolen the show a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think Hoskins works perfectly in this situation. He's such a phenomenal performer, but he's not like, Jack Nicholson or Eddie Murphy, you know, where they're just sort of, and then it becomes the Eddie Murphy show essentially. Hoskins was just the right place, right time a lot in his life and he was literally just hanging out at a theater bar waiting for his friend when he was handed a script and told you're next and then he went in and got the part and that uh, as uh, understudy at this play and that literally is what launched his acting career just again right place right time he did a lot of work for the bbc he eventually got into film with stuff like pink floyd the wall and terry gilliam's uh, brazil weirdly enough terry gilliam coming up again in this episode and, of course, that shows off his acting abilities as well as his ability to play, like, really good, serious, you know, straight-up work. Uh, Kathleen Turner, uncredited. Why don't, why is Kathleen Turner uncredited as the voice of Jessica Rabbit? Uh, was
4: that just to sell it or something? Like, the illusion? Uh, I This is pre-Aladdin, so I think the idea of the big celebrity voice reveal was, like, not as um, part of the... Uh, process gotcha. and it was like beneath the, uh, maybe yeah. she didn't work for uh, rate whatever the rate is. Who knows? There's a, there's a ton of reasons.
3: She had actually recently worked with Zemeckis on Romancing the Stone, uh, but it is Amy Irving who sang the song in the film as Jessica Rabbit. She was a big time Broadway singer. Folks uh, up for Judge Doom included Tim Curry, Christopher Lee, John Cleese, and Peter O'Toole, but of course Christopher Lloyd. Hot off of Back to the Future with uh, Zemeckis ends up scoring the part. According
4: to the oral history article on io9 Uh, Tim Curry was too scary and John Cleese was not scary enough.
3: Yep. Yeah, they couldn't take him too scary. I bet Christopher Lee probably fell in the too scary camp as well. <laughs> uh yeah, he compared his role to his part as Klingon Commander Krug in Star Trek Three, and that they were just these over the top villain parts that were super fun to play. He obviously kills it. I think the big factoid, too, he never blinks in any of the shots, which does just is a subtle way to freak you out. I, I love it that you don't even act you can't pinpoint but you're like something's off about this guy. Uh his
4: weird fake teeth is very unsettling. Yes. To, the whole reveal, and he has like him. a putty chin. It's it's very yeah.
3: It's so smart. So yeah, just the cast is so amazing, and uh, you know for sure more on Christopher Lloyd in both our Adams Family episode and our Back to the Future episode. Uh, it's funny doing these this series, doing this show with you, makes me realize like, oh, I think Christopher Lloyd's might be one of my favorite actors of all time, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure like. Who Framed Roger is probably one of my top five movies? And Robert Zemeckis is one of my favorite directors of all time. And I'm just like just realizing this this late in my life, because I never put names to stuff.
4: On the next Sunday study session, I'll make you watch Welcome to Marwin, and we can <laughs> just cure
3: you with that real easy. So uh due to Williams' request, the whole thing, of course, is moved to is filmed in England, and actually Walt Disney Animation UK, the studio, was created in order to make this movie. They used, here's here's the factoid dump. They used uh, life-size rubber puppets as props for Bob Hoskins and the others to act around. And, of course, uh, also, what's his name? Fleischer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the voice actor. He, um, who did Roger Rabbit, who I feel like I should have more on. Did I just skip his name? Uh,
4: he was a stand-up that was doing a stint in England, and so he got the casting call. He got the role. Uh, and it's... Just a pure, you know, it's kind of his greatest role. He worked in other Zemeckis movies.
3: Also, before this gig, he was also known as Dr. King in the film A Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, not only does he do Roger the, uh, Roger Rabbit, he also does Benny the Cab, Greasy, and Psycho uh, as well. And does he do, he does the baby too, right? Doesn't he do Baby Herman? No,
4: no, no. Baby Herman's another guy who was just in England and got the voice cast in a weird turn of, uh,
3: Still, though, I, I love it because we were just talking, did our Rick and Morty episode, and I noticed that in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. We definitely have scenes where he acts across from himself as Roger Rabbit and Benny the Cab, which I thought was a lot of fun.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun— Yeah, you get it every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
4: The uh, Charles Fleischer was a character on set going so far as to commission the costume department to make him a set of rabbit ears and Roger Rabbit style coveralls so that while he was doing live reactions off camera to the actors, they could see a rabbit and kind of help with their uh, uh, performance. He called it not a voice acting role, but a uh, a transcendental acting or transmedial acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, he tells a story. Uh, one of the there's, there was a bunch of made-for-TV documentaries about the film to promote it back in the day. They're all on YouTube, and he talks about how. Uh, he was in his Roger Rabbit costume in the uh, commissary of the London based studio that he was in. And uh, he heard some Teamsters or whatever the British equivalent of Teamsters are. Uh, snickering behind him as he was eating his lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> blokes. <laughs> he heard some blokes talk about, like, hey, do you see, like, look at the rabbit in this, like, this Roger Rabbit thing's going to be a stinker. This <laughs> looks, it looks so fake and dumb.
3: <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, Dean Cundy. Sounds like he really put his camera ops through it. Uh, he had them moving around as if they were reacting to real world action happening, and he would even put chairs and things in their way as obstacles. He was also, I believe, the one that uh, first started was one of the first adopters of the like mobile camera setup. And, uh, that, you know, essentially attaching one to, like, your chest and moving around. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense for him. Really into, like, mobility when it comes to camera stuff. Uh, Lights were deliberately hit by Roger or actors on set to force an added level of intricacy. It's actually called bumping the light, I believe.
4: It's now a technique. Oh, okay. No, no. All right. Uh, what you're describing is... Oh, okay. I I did... Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. right, right. Uh, So, so, uh... Just, just to lay out what it took to make like a single uh, shot in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, George Gibbs was the on-site practical effects manager, and it was his job to rig up the million different ways for the tune characters to interact with the real world. So uh, things would be hooked up on fishing line, things would have little... Uh, Baby Herman, famously, is a weird robot on a stalk and a mechanical arm that is waving a cigar around (laughs) in reaction to the voice Uh line that is then animated over frame by frame just for the effect of Baby Herman is holding a real cigar and not an animated cigar. The guns that the weasels uh, kind of whip around are being controlled by marionette puppeteers above the set on little strings and they have to coordinate the motions. Um, The actors do a pass-through of each shot with the rubber dummies so they can figure out the blocking and where to focus their eyes and keep the eyeline realistic to avoid that Mary Poppins effect, and then go through the same shot again without the rubber models. That footage is then uh, turned into photostats, which is pretty much like a Xerox. They used a, what did they use? They used a special kind of film uh, called like Paramount Vista Vision. They had to like repurpose old film stock and old lenses from scratch at ILM to like get it. But the point was to have better film fidelity because they knew that the various passes on the optical camera effects would degrade the quality of the film. So they needed even more resolution to work with. So they have these perfectly timed shots of the actors interacting with the world with the wires and motors and robots flinging stuff around. The footage is then turned into Xeroxes. The animators animate Over each individual frame, the characters how they're supposed to move. uh, Which, as the camera's moving, these animators have to make sure the movement is fluid, the perspective is correct. All of these individual things that a normal animator would not have to deal with. Uh, The pencil tests are then shown to Zemeckis, who either approves them or asks them to be redone. The footage, the animation is then inked and painted which uh, Williams had to enlist, like, animators from across the world. Even Disney at this point had been using a Xerox method. Like, they weren't even doing this level of fidelity anymore. And so you had the flat colors animated. A second pass would happen to cover the shadows. A third pass would be done to cover the highlights. So that's why every frame of animation has the shadows and highlights reacting to the lights in real time. Yes. Um all of these frames up to 180 individual cells of animation especially for complex shots like Toontown were then sent to ILM who had to painstakingly arrange them and optically capture them using uh, an advanced camera again no scanners no computers there is no video file and then only then when every frame is plugged into a single piece of film is that shot complete and that is so much fucking work, and so much detail and so much timing, everyone down from the actors trying to memorize perfectly where the rubber model was a second ago, to the camera operators having to make sure each camera move is frame perfect, to the animators having to make sure that the lighting is correct, to even the guys at ILM whose job was just to kind of scan things and make things all fit into a single frame, uh, having to be, figure out, like, how do you do a rack focus effect on a cartoon. That's that. You know, they had to do that all optically. They had to do that outside of the camera. All of this stuff, all goes into an effect that a average watcher would not even notice because the effect is so complete. That yeah, Roger Rabbit's real. He knocked over a glass. Whatever. The term you mentioned at this point five minutes ago, Holden, <laughs> is bumping the lamp when Eddie Valiant is try is handcuffed to Roger Rabbit and he has to go to Dolores' bar above the train station to the old speakeasy room to hide out and lay low for a second. There is a shot where Bob Hoskins' head knocks into a hanging lamp that's from, you know, an overhead lamp that's hanging from the ceiling. The lamp is now moving in a chaotic direction, and Roger Rabbit's lighting is consistent as the shadows and highlights move around in response to where the lamp is. This detail took so much work to get right, and nobody gives a shit that the term was invented in the animation industry called "banging the lamp," and that is to describe when you are working on a shot or an effect that needs to be pitch perfect for an, a uh, something that you know the audience will not give a shit about, but you have to do it anyway. <laughs> but that said, that is banging the lamp.
3: That said, I en- encourage. All of you listening to this...
4: Bumping the lamp. It's bumping the lamp. I'm looking at my notes.
3: I encourage all of you who are listening to this to re-watch this movie, knowing about those painstaking, painstaking details, and you will notice them this time around. And it will fucking floor you. Like, every time a, an animated uh, character passes by a light, uh, pass moves through a scene, just in general... Just look at all the little details about the shading, the shadows, the lighting. It is absolutely mind-blowing when you rewatch it, knowing these things. And it, and it, the whole point, though, is to sell the illusion. So it's actually amazing that you don't notice those things at first. I think if they were uber-noticeable, from the beginning, then the animators actually didn't do their job right. The whole thing is that they're, act, they're trying to sell it so well to you that you just completely forget you're, even, you're watching something that is impossible. <laughs> you're watching a reality that is not uh, true. Uh, the, the Williams came up with the concept, uh, calling it 2.5-dimensional uh, with their approach. I love this quote from Dean Cundey. They developed a completely new technique in order to create this illusion of shape. So it was that kind of dedication. They could have easily said they would just composite these flat characters, but creating this illusion of shape was something they did and it was essential to the end result. So when I saw the film, I was as as surprised as the audience. Our job is always to create illusion and to get an audience to believe and then want to come and see and tell their friends it's awesome. How to do that stuff is always left to the few pioneers who either are determined or able to understand it and take the techniques to the next step. Sometimes it's driven by what's easier. Let's lop off the camera in a big wide shot and the animators will use it just like they would use one of their painted backgrounds. It'll be just be a frame of, of a camera. It's too hard to track the camera movement. Well, someone else says it's hard, but it's worth it. And, of course, Richard Williams, though, had help. I I, always, when we do these episodes, like, this one guy was responsible for all of it. Very not true. Um, Associate producer Don Han. Don Han, I think, or Don Han. uh, Disney Mainstay, who will go on to work on Beauty and the Beast. And The Lion King was a big help in this production. there was also a stable of veteran animators such as Dale Bear, Michael Peraza, James Baxter, David Bowers, and more—who people who worked for Warner Bros., Disney—all these this incredible collection of animators that helped uh, Richard Williams and crew achieve the vision of this film. It's definitely a team, much larger than just uh, ri- just Richard. And of course, most of the animation done in Walt Disney Animation UK, but there was also a specialized unit in Los Angeles, uh, Angeles supervised by Dale Baer uh, to get work done over there as well. Um, and actually, what's crazy is production was almost shut down. The budget goes $10 million over. Disney stays on board with the enthusiasm of the crew as well, Steven Spielberg being like, hey guys, I get it, we're going over, but this is going to be fucking huge, just trust us, and I'm glad they did. I mean,
4: it's a difference between like, hey, we're going over, and oh hey, this is, as of 1988, the most expensive movie ever made yeah, in yeah. the history of cinema, which it was.
3: But what's funny too is they just ended up going, the budget ended up being what they initially said it was going to be, so it is kind of funny. I feel like at the end of the day, Spielberg and Fam probably knew that it was going to Go up to what they had originally proposed, so they just said, "Yeah, we'll do it for 30. And then it's like, "Hey, um, actually, we need more money, and now you're in too deep." So,
4: actually, we need more than double that. Whoops. Yeah.
3: So, uh, yeah, um, it it's you know it's, it's kind of a miracle in, in in a few different ways that this film came to be, and of course, it shows when you're just like, "How is Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse in the same scene together? How are they able to be this blue in a uh, film that?" Is a Disney ish film mm-hmm. that involves all these cartoon characters and all these kind of innocent uh, elements mixed in with this like dirtiness. And, but it works in a way that is so difficult to achieve. And I miss this in film because I know that like now we make such good stuff for children. And I mean, such stuff too that has like emotional impact and things. You know, I'm thinking of Coco and Inside Out and things like that, uh, these films for kids. But I do miss the days of the like, weird, dirty movie that's also for kids in the 80s. -hmm. Like, I miss that. I guess we just talked about this with Goonies, right? Yeah. How they say shit all the time, and like,
4: they're like these bad kids, you know? If we're gonna talk about weird, dirty things in the kids' movie, we have to acknowledge Jessica Rabbit, Pussygate. Uh We've yeah, so talk you're talking about, about
3: the Laserdisc release in 1994, and VHS, and sh- VHS, sh- shedding a little bit of light on some horny animator business. By the way, I also missed this time in animation <laughs> back when the the priest and Little Mermaid got the boner, and uh, you know it's the, the, the nude centerfolds Lion in King. the yeah.
4: uh, uh, in the bar in the not the borrowers, the uh, the rescuers. The rescuers had some nudie shots. Yep. in
3: Yeah. Uh, oh, damn it. You know, I mean, I know it's completely inappropriate, and honestly, those animators should probably be arrested on, on some level, but uh still kind of miss it.
4: According to legend, <laughs> when Jessica Rabbit is flung from Benny the Cab after Judge Doom lays out the uh, dip on the road and Benny screams in agony, I still can't stress how fucked up dip is because you have these innocent, immortal characters confront the like reality of death in the same way a child would yeah. with uh, trauma and heart. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Rabbit is flown from the vehicle and her skirt billows out just so that you can see a flesh-toned vague triangle of something under her skirt for a single frame before she lands. This frame, this infamous frame is what does not exist on Disney Plus. It does not exist on the Blu-ray. It does not exist on the DVD. It existed for a very short amount of time, but for this few incredibly weird honestly Fuck the animator who was having some cheeky fun and, like, just calling out the dirty past of animation. Who are these weirdos that were going frame by frame (laughs) through the laser disc of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, hoping to see some animated sniz?
3: Yeah, I'm sure they weren't just trying to pause Jessica Rabbit in the perfect position for whatever they were doing that day. They
4: were going to do some semen in price, if you know what I mean. There's
3: also a portable hole, if you know what I mean. There's also uh, a (laughs) shot. God damn
4: it. This is the wizard (laughs) and the bruiser promise. We will... We will teach you about the, the <laughs> things that have influenced our culture with love and respect and also too many jizz jokes. I love it. My <laughs> callback made you literally go, God damn it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, there's also the weird shot with baby Herman throwing out the middle finger just as he passes under a woman's dress and he emerges with drool on his lip, which I think is arguably way more fucked up than the Jessica Rabbit thing. But I digress. Post-production on the film. Uh, the film was shot in seven months, but post-production took 14 with the, all the all the animation that needed to be done. I also wanted to highlight the score. Uh, the wonderful, subtle, noir score done by Alan Silvestri. We talked about him because he's been working with Zemeckis at this point uh, for a minute. He did the Back to the Future trilogy. So we actually talked about him on there. And he also goes on to do that classic Forrest Gump score as well. Uh, After going to Berkeley College uh, for music... He did his first score for a low-budget action film called The Doberman Gang. And then he did 95 of the show Chips' 139 episodes, uh, which is crazy. Weird. And then he met Zemeckis. I know, right? The London Symphony Orchestra actually performs the score and they completely apparently improvise the jazzy Jessica Rabbit scenes. By the way, that Jessica Rabbit nightclub scene, her sparkly sequin dress, one of the more difficult, tricky animation moments for them to create. And it was done by filtering light through a plastic uh, bag scratched with steel wool. Had no idea. Which I think is kind of crazy. Yeah, I want to go. Yeah, going back and looking at that, knowing that's kind of nutty. Uh, yeah, so then you have the weird part, you know, where, and this makes so much sense to me, again, why I'm like, how did this movie even happen? Uh, Michael Eisner, of course, is like, hey, there's like so much weird sex shit going on in this fucking movie. What is going on? Oh, oh I don't it's think a double-edged sword. We should do
4: this. Yeah. Because, uh, Eisner's like, this is too horny. This is way too horny. That was the other guy who wanted to do an adult thing. Yeah. I want to make fucking money. Yeah. Conversely, another early uh, test screening was done as a surprise for a group of 17 to 19-year-old teenagers who were there on a Saturday night for their dates. And they started showing the movie as a special surprise and multiple couples walked out because of that cold open with the three-minute animated short Ah. they just thought they were seeing some baby shit oh okay. because they they didn't even stay for the big reveal yeah and no one had heard of the movie before nobody knew and that got the executive scared being like we got to cut this whole sequence people will ride in the streets but zemeckis had final cut so yes
3: he got it all in you're right with that final cut You know, they went back and forth on it, but he put his foot down, and I'm glad he did because I love this movie, and of course it goes on to be number one at the box office opening weekend, this massive hit, Uh, and the movie is credited, like I said, for repopularizing the golden age of American animation, brings Disney back from the dead, kind of did all the things that... It had hoped to do and more gave
4: Spielberg a taste of animation, and without ah. Roger Rabbit, we wouldn't have Tiny Toons and Animaniacs True. and all that jazz.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, we have those three shorts that came out before other films, which I wish again talk about harkening back to an age I miss. I loved this time in filmies. I was like, oh, they're going to start doing this for like all the movies, like mm-hmm. go, go back to the old school where we get to watch like a little sh- like animated short and then our actual movie begins, which I thought was like a lovely way to pad out the movie theater experience. But uh, still, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Dick Tracy, and A Far Off Place, these are three films that had uh, Roger Rabbit opening shorts titled Tummy Trouble, Roller Coaster Rabbit, and Trail Mix-Up. And I think when I was having these weird nostalgic feelings of being in the theater watching Roger Rabbit, I'm pretty sure it was because it. Uh, I was one of those people who saw the, um, I believe it was Tummy Trouble before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was one, honestly, actually thinking back, might be one of my favorite movie theater experiences.
4: Oh.
3: All told. You got that great Roger Rabbit story in the beginning. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was so fucking fun. I was the perfect age for it. I saw it, I believe I saw it with my dad. We had like a f- fantastic time, which is hilarious. Because I always remember the time he took me to see Problem Child, and I loved it, <laughs> and we walked out, and he was just like, that was the m- worst movie I've ever seen in my life, which I was like, oh, interesting.
4: Holden, if I may offer a counterpoint to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, uh, I was five years old, and that big ant was super scary. I to me.
3: gave me a lifelong fear of scorpions. That film, <laughs> <And> it, <laughs> legitimately, I can definitely trace it back. To Honey, I Shuck the Kids. I am terrified of scorpions because of that fucking movie. So yes, that brings us to the potential sequel. In 1989, a sequel was discussed with J.J. Abrams of all people as the writer and Zemeckis as producer. The script is eventually abandoned. That's. I mean, we're talking 89. We we have updates as early as uh, recently as 2016. So let's talk. About it. Then came a new approach. This is the weirdest thing ever, Jake. I don't know if you read much about this, but they had this new script. It takes us to the farm Roger Rabbit grew up on, but also it gives us this World War II subplot where Jessica Rabbit is kidnapped by the Nazis and forced Mm -hmm. to make Nazi propaganda films. Uh, f- uh, uh, which uh forced Spielberg to walk away from the project is he just made Schindler's List? It was like I can't make like a Nazi comedy. <laughs> I just did Schindler's List. Like this isn't happening.
4: <laughs> Correction: He can't make Nazi comedies anymore. Yeah, exactly. anymore. Done... Yeah, yeah.
3: What did, he, what, what did he? What did he made? What was the? the what,
4: what was it? Nineteen forty or whatever it was called. Oh that, yeah, uh, yeah, that yeah, early yeah. One?
3: yeah. And arguably Indiana Jones. Uh, more talk of a sequel came out in 2009 with Zemeckis on board, though this was slightly stifled by the loss, unfortunately, of Bob Hoskins in 2014. And again, cannot highlight enough how much Bob Hoskins makes this movie as well. He is the perfect foil to Roger. He's so funny the whole time. The physical, his physical ability is incredible in this movie. It's it's so. Good. And
4: if you watch an interview with him, uh, he has the thickest Cockney accent yes. in the entire world, and it is so funny. Cause all I hear, all I am expecting to hear is Valiant, and like, oh, Oi bruh, and all I'm expecting to hear is it's a me, it's a Mario. He didn't talk like that at all in the. Ma- oh, we have to do an episode on the Mario Brothers
3: movie. Do we? Do we have to do it? I mean, yes, it will actually be a lot of fun. That that movie is just mired with insane bullshit. But, uh, yeah, um, there, there was a sequel script, or there is a sequel script, that Zemeckis described as, quote, wonderful. But as of 2016, he also reconfirmed that Disney is not interested in making it. He had things to say along the lines of, like, there's not a princess in it, so they have no real reason to make it. I'm not really sure. It does feel like Disney is just... Not in a position to make movies like that and uh, anymore. Uh,
4: I mean, it's just they they figured it out. Yeah, they they've conquered the world. Yeah, there's no need to to
3: take any big risks or, or make big swings. But also, people are really into nostalgic bullshit, and I feel like people would probably get excited about some kind of bringing back from the dead of Roger Rabbit. I personally though, am saying this right now. Plus they'd
4: have to do it with CG and it would be just a little bit. Exactly.
3: A lot of times I'm like, Oh, I hope a sequel happens. Like I love this franchise. I think they could do really cool things. I think in this case, let it be. I think it's just this perfect thing. And I don't think it can really be replicated, especially with modern day techniques. It'll actually cheapen it. I think with CGI and things. So I, I hope they just leave it.
4: I mean, Gary K. Wolf did make sequel books. You can revisit the world of Toontown uh, as obscured by various layers of legal bullshit.
3: I also just think no one like the willingness to share rights in a certain way wouldn't. Oh ease. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not enough like it would just be for the love of it and um, not just a massive disgusting cash grab. So I just don't think that the rights holders would give a fuck. Warner
4: Brother like Viacom would never give Disney an excuse to have their streaming service. Have a
3: hit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the. I hope we convince you to go rewatch it. One of those things that holds up like a motherfucker. Oh, I guess we should mention there's a couple problematic moments in it for sure. Definitely the Native American bullet. you could point to as maybe being like,
4: Ugh. let he who was alive in 1998 nineteen eighty eight who didn't go whoa 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 with their mouth cast the first stone. <laughs> I that was just a thing we did. It yeah. was bad, but it was not a good idea. I but will it was say,
3: yeah, I think that the, it, it it for almost it's like ninety nine percent completely holds up. Yeah, like that's how good this thing is.
1: Oh my!
3: <laughs> I've like. <laughs> Scream that every now and again just to make myself laugh. I love this movie so much and genuinely funny and genuinely the humor holds the fuck up. <gasps> Patty <and> cake, <laughs> Patty cake, two bets. <laughs> just love it so much. Hold on,
4: I'm gonna say something controversial. Fake Jessica Rabbit could get it. She was not. She was, she was not as horrifying as dragon. I remember. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would hang out with she it. She seemed very affectionate. Like you know, yeah. it's. She'd I, I could make it work. I'm saying I could make it work. She'd be fun.
3: Uh, All right. I think that's going to do it for us. Uh, We hope you enjoyed our episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. For $5 a month, you get weekly bonus episodes. For $15 a month, you can join us on our Sunday study session where we go over whatever we're studying that week. Last Sunday, of course, uh, or the last study session, of course, we uh, watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit together, and it was awesome. Uh, if you'd like to do that, just go check us out. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Ho. Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams happening on the reg. I'm about to go uh, soon on paternity leave, but until then, I'm for which I'll probably take a month off total from streaming but uh get it in now check me out i'm doing a lot of stuff on there we're having a lot of fun
4: jake gotta press the flesh on that patreon patreon.com forward slash whizbrew uh like holden said a lot of great stuff a lot of good content a lot of good hangs and it helps keep this show going it keeps the lights on it really is the difference between uh life and no podcast um the you can follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. Read all my thoughts and plops, and uh, get little tidbits of research from the upcoming week's episodes. And uh, go to YouTube.com/puppetjared where I my VTuber persona. Uh, is is streaming. Love it. Give it a sub. Give it a watch. All the VODs are there. Uh, I think you will have a very good time.
3: Hell yeah, man. Love the new project, buddy. And uh, yeah, always remember, everybody, never stop bruising.
4: And keep on whizzing. Uh, Can we get a little bit of uh, Roger Rabbit singing Merry-Go-Round Broke Down (laughs) uh, to take us out? (laughs)
1: Your brain. Nice shirt. Who's your
4: this show is
3: made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to LastPodcastNetwork.com.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.